you know, there's nothing better than being where the action is. <laughs> Today, we really see in a new way the global expression of the body of Christ and it's just so exciting getting the chance to be part of that. We often talk about world mission in terms of sacrifice, hardship, and it's not that those are not a part of it, but it's also incredible privilege and it's getting to be a part of things and it's having your world expanded and having yourself expanded. And I mean, I just think that it's it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. It's really been the privilege of our lives so far. We've loved it. And so don't just think about all the negatives and the sacrifice. Think of what a privilege it is to be involved in God's world and how God, you know, he does empower his people for, for this work. You're not going alone. And I think as well, there are, there are beautiful and surprising things that you don't know until you go. Countless souls around the world who do not know Jesus and can't easily access the gospel. This is the heart of mission. What small role can you play in God's big world? Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, their stories and perspectives can really help us. Thanks for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we demystify, decode and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Mark Peterson here on the Heart of Mission podcast, and I can't wait to introduce you to Arthur and Tammy Davis. They're on fire for global mission, and they're going to kick off this fourth season with a bang. Just back from 10 and a half years in Tanzania, where their own thinking in a range of areas has been challenged, well, today, I think they're going to help us reflect on our own thinking a little bit too. Tammy's going to tell us about a time she was doing a presentation and everyone stood up and started yelling at her. What had she said that stirred this sudden fury? And have you heard that idea that with all this great gospel growth that's happened in Africa, that the church is a mile wide but an inch deep? Is there a lack of theological depth and reflection amongst African Christians? Well, we're probably going to want to rethink that idea after hearing what Tammy has to say. The Davises have been serving the Tanzanian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, TAFIS. Arthur in particular has invested deeply in the leadership and staff of that student movement. Let's meet Arthur and Tammy Davis. Arthur and Tammy Davis, it's fabulous to have you on the Heart of Mission podcast. Hello. Thanks so much. Now, you guys have just recently returned from, well, just over 10 years of service with CMS in Tanzania. You were part of TAFIS, the IFES movement within Tanzania, a little bit like AFES here in Australia, mm -hmm. a lot like, a little bit like? A bit, yeah. Somewhat, somewhat like? So it's a, it's a campus ministry, it's working with students in universities, but also in technical colleges, which is a bit different to AFES. But it's part of the same global family yeah, that's as, right. as so AFES. It's seeking to, I mean, their, their motto is reaching students, transforming lives. So there's seeking to connect with students, bringing them to Christ, maybe for the first time, and then seeking to build into them and yeah, giving them those formative experiences through Bible study, through training, to equip them more in Christ during their uh, years on campus. Yeah. So that's a lot like what we experienced at ES in Adelaide. 
But probably one of the big differences is that where is it ES in a lot of AFES groups in Australia, you have multiple staff per campus. In Tanzania, you're talking one staff member for maybe five to ten campuses. So that just really changes the way that ministry is done, even though, you know, the heartbeat is really the same. Now, when you went over there, you didn't go over there because TAFIS was really, there wasn't a ministry. In fact, it took a little while to work out that TAFIS was the ministry you were going to. They already had a reputation in some ways for producing students who had a really big impact through their lives. Tell us a little bit about the TAFIS that you came to. Yeah, so we met a bishop early on in our time who who revealed to us that he himself had come through TAFIS back in the day and he said to us, oh, yes, if you find someone in public life who is serving with integrity, they've probably come through TAFIS. So... That's kind of going back into the maybe the 80s and 90s. So people who have since come through into really senior positions in society who have been formed through TAFIS. And internationally. So when the big floods happened in Pakistan last year, last year or the year before, the, the woman who led the UN response to it was a Tanzanian and turns out was a TAFES graduate. And so just incredible stories of Christian people really having an impact in the world. And that was that was really who TAFES was. And it's who TAFES continues to be. But when we came into TAFES, there was a sense of needing to kind of regroup and try and work out what had been going on in the 80s and 90s. TAFES had been the only student group on campus. And then what happened kind of around 2000 was a whole lot of other Groups decided that they wanted in on it and they and then they started up in particular denominational groups on campus and that then meant that people who would have previously been involved with TAFES were being told by their pastors, you have to go to the denominational group. But the problem was the denominational groups did really great kind of standard Christian stuff, sing, pray, read the Bible, that kind of stuff, but they did less actual Bible study and empowering people to engage with the Bible themselves and we're also less focused on kind of leadership development and who are you going to be as a Christian leader in the world. And so there were these TAFES distinctives, but also they were, I guess, under-realised or, or people felt like they were in the DNA of TAFES, but they weren't necessarily good at articulating them and talking about them to other people. And so there was a there was a sense of, oh, we've kind of lost some ground here. What are we going to do? Not because they wanted to be in competition with the denominational groups, but just to kind of work out who are we and what are we on about. And so that was kind of the, the TAFES that we came into with this great history and legacy, but trying to work out who are they going to be for, for today's world. How did you think about what your involvement might be in that context? Um, like what, you know, was it Bible study leading? Was it discipling leaders? I know that that's kind of what you've done a lot of, but was that part of the plan in the start? Yeah, I think we did initially expect to be working directly with students. And I think uh, an approach that has um, been common in Australia is you you really build in and invest with one group of students. And then that's something that can be kind of multiplied elsewhere. But I think what we began to find was that with this staff team spread out all across the country and with often just a single staff worker for a whole region, so for five to ten campuses, there was actually, yeah, how, how would you say, There's, there, was, there was more that we could do in terms of building them up 
Yeah. Also, we th- I think we just saw the, there are great people who are already on campus and so we could go and be one of those great people on campus or we could actually build into these people. And something that was very important for us going to Tanzania was this feeling that it's very easy as a white person to come in and to get a hearing and, and to set up a ministry and people will receive you very hospitably and they'll benefit from that and you could have a great ministry but in the end, it won't continue past you a lot of the time. It's very difficult to make that kind of sustainable. And so as we were thinking about what we wanted to do in Tanzania, we were very conscious of rather than making it about us, trying to join together with something else and build others up. Because in the end, you know, Tafis was always going to keep going, whether or not we were there, rather than it being a ministry that we set up, which would kind of rise and fall with us. And so that really shaped what we ended up doing with TAFES in this kind of support empowerment kind of role. Now, you've seen quite a few things happening over the last 10 years, but the one thing that sticks out to me is this idea that staff around the time when you started were often involved in that work for quite a short period of time, but that length of time that they've committed has extended out a little bit, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Can you give us Mm -hmm. some examples of that and tell us what that's looked like? Yeah, in TAFES for a number of years, TAFES has been recruiting really just among new graduates. So you would have people coming straight from their degree or their course that they're finishing and and often saying, I've as a as a way of giving thanks to God, I'm going to tithe a year and I'm going to commit this this one year to God and serve on staff. But then that that's it, this this one year. And and often what functionally happened was they would come for a year, get all kinds of great training at TAFES, mm. and then go on to do something else. And it felt, I mean, on one hand they're saying I'm giving a year to TAFES, but on the other hand it felt a little kind of consumerist and, and sometimes also a bit passive, like I'm yep. just here to do my thing and receive and then I can go and do something else. And you sort of want to say to people, well, hang on, what have you got to contribute? So we were wanting to... Yeah, give give people enough time and the, the right kind of environment in which they could move from that mindset through to seeing themselves as actually being there to serve and equip students to lead others and to to even become those who would feed back into other staff. So to do that, you know, it takes more than just one or two years. Yeah. So we'd say to the staff, stay for one year and, and learn what to do stay for a second year and you'll be able to see the problems, stay for a third year and you can actually work on it and you'll actually know what you're doing. And that was certainly the case. Like, do you want to talk about Msemo? Yeah, so so Msemo is one who initially committed for just one year, had an okay experience in that first year, but then said, look, I, I want to I wanna go in, on into a second year. And it was during that second year that he began to really see how the role that he could play in gathering students around the TAFES vision. But then at the end of that year, he felt like, oh, I just, I'm still just scratching the surface. And so he actually committed for a third year. And he was someone who was instrumental in TAFES in Dar es Salaam, moving from just offering training campus by campus, instead actually bringing multiple student fellowships together for a training event over the course of a weekend. So just a really rich environment for inducting student leaders into TAFES and 
Yeah, equipping them in the vision. And helping them to feel a part of something bigger. Yes. And and what Arthur's leaving out of this is that really part of the reason that Msema was able to stay and able to keep going was that he was meeting with Arthur and was actually well supported. And so when he got to the end of his first year, he wasn't burnt out, he wasn't, you know, bitter or whatever. And he was like, no, I, I could do a second year. And then he was again well supported and so when he got to the third year, it it was viable for him to continue. And he was tremendous in the way that he he built that. But also it was part of how he reflected with Arthur. So when Arthur's talking about this, rather than doing lots of little trainings for the leaders, bringing them together, because one of the things that Msemo identified was just the amount of time that he was spending in travel you know, going two hours to this place to meet with these student leaders and then an hour and a half back here and then, you know, it was just really taxing. Dar es Salaam is a big place. It's a big city. And so this idea of gathering everyone in the one spot, which was just better for Msemo, meant that he could actually, you know, do something more sustainable. It was actually great for the students as well to gather together and see each other and feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not so alone and I'm part of something bigger and... Yeah, so it was just one of those things where everything kind of came together really well and 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 really enabled Msemo to stay on for longer and be much more effective. Okay, so after 10 years, you you know this place pretty well now, don't you? You know how they think. You know how, how Tanzanians are different to Australians. You've got cross-cultural mission kind of completely nailed, right? <laughs> oh, you know, you just... I mean, we know more than what we knew before. But, but we also know, we know what, what we don't know. That's right. We, we have a much stronger sense of, of difference and of strangeness as well. I feel like yeah. the thing that we're good at doing, which this is, this is like a cross-cultural school, is we're just good at tolerating the ambiguity. So we had this, so here's an example from our time in Dodoma. I came into the post office one time and I was trying to work out where do you line up? And I couldn't really see what was going on. I saw all these people sitting around. I'm thinking, are they in a line? Have they got, there's no like go and pick a number or anything. And so I thought, I'm just going to have to sit down here. And I sit down next to this guy and I'm trying to work out what's going on. We're watching the lady. She's calling certain people forward. We're thinking, I don't know, there's got to be some kind of thing here. But then she calls someone forward who came in after us. And we're thinking, should should we have gone up to the counter and let her know that we, anyway, this guy, Tanzanian guy leans over to me and says, do you know what's going on? No, I've got no idea what's going on. And, I mean, that's kind of what it's like sometimes, that you just have to be okay with not knowing what's going on and being able to tolerate that in of yourself. And then eventually, you know, she called us up. I still have no idea when or how. (laughs) So how on earth do you do ministry in a context like that? I mean, you're learning ministry here and you're processing it here theologically and, and through practical ministry experience. You land in a completely different culture. How do you do it? I think you start by not doing <laughs> and you we we've so appreciated the the this the approach we've had with CMS has been to spend this this dedicated time at the beginning 3 years for orientation listening learning and allowing that time to kind of find our place a bit and work out who we meant to actually be working with what are we meant to be doing that has been absolutely invaluable, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, I mean, you have to do 
some stuff in order to do the learning, right? Because if you, you can learn a lot by observing, but you also have to have a go and you have to work out how people view you. So we had this one experience early on in our time in Tanzania where we were at the university and at that time we were working as university chaplains and they asked us to come and speak at this Mkesha like, like overnight an overnight prayer event. Prayer event yeah, like all, all night, yeah. And, I mean, the first thing had been that we'd been talking to people about putting on a thing for the students and we'd been talking about doing it on a, on a Saturday, like, morning or afternoon and people were like, you can't do it on a Saturday morning. Everyone's been to the Mkesha the night before and they're exhausted on a Saturday morning because they've been, you know, up all night. So, you know, you learn those kinds of things. And then we we did a talk at it and we went for kind of the standard time that Tanzanians go for and, you know, we're not, linear and direct in the way that we were speaking because we'd observed Tanzanians doing this and we knew that that was kind of how people think. And then and then the feedback that came to us was, well, why did you preach like a Tanzanian? We wanted you to preach like Australians. And and <laughs> we were just like, oh, there's there's like there's a hybridity that comes that you have to learn as well where on one hand you want to do things like Tanzanians but sometimes they're actually asking you because of the different thing that you bring as well and um, yeah. they don't realize how different it is so you've still got to work out how to how to pitch it right for the context and that that's delicate and that takes time to learn so that idea of hybridity has been really important for us where as we minister together with Tanzanians where are we expecting things to land it's going to be a lot Tanzanian. It's going to be maybe a little bit Australian, but it, it's actually going to be a mixture. It's not going to be entirely uh, one or the other. So that's I think that's something to kind of expect if you are ministering cross-culturally alongside different people. And, you know, in Tafes, there were other Africans serving on staff as well. So in that kind of environment, for for things to come out in a mixed cultural way is actually very appropriate, yeah. Tammy, you wore many hats when you were in Tanzania and, among other things, investing a significant amount of time and energy in your boys, but also your curiosity for Tanzania and Tanzanian women and the way they understand and process and think theologically obviously captivated you because you ended up doing a PhD on this and on Tafas women and their theology. Can you just tell us a little, why did you do that first? Well, it was really fun. I know lots of people don't think that PhDs are fun. I had a whale of a time. Why did I do it? There are a number of reasons. One reason is that, you know, the average Christian in the world today is a young black African woman. And most of the time when we study theology, well, it's not the theology of young black African women, is it? And even when we study African theology, we're often looking at what the blokes think. And it's not that that's not important, but there's this whole unexplored area of Christianity. That's in part why I did it. In part, I did it because what we had heard about African theology and the African church was this idea of the church being a mile wide and an inch deep and really lacking in theological depth. And certainly we went to Tanzania expecting to encounter that. And what we met were incredible disciples who had really thought things through and had a very sophisticated theology for their context. And I would, I've just felt a bit dismayed, really, that that was not a story that was known. It was certainly not something that I had heard before coming. And we encountered these women. And it's not just women. You know, there are blokes with great theologies as well, but lots of my experiences were with women. And I just thought, let's tell this story. Let's talk about this great theology and let's try and change for a bit how we view Africans um, and African theology and 
And I think part of that is waking up to the reality of God's work in Africa. It is not just numbers. The Holy Spirit is is at work growing depth in his church, growing his disciples. And I think there's actually stuff that we can learn as well. So, yeah, it was, I just felt like this would be a great thing to spend time investing into. And I'm, I'm sure you've, you've learned an enormous amount to write the whole PhD on it, but was there anything that rattled your own theology? Ah, uh, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the first thing is that I, I really went in thinking that, oh, I mean, there's so many things I could say, but so I'll give you an example. I was teaching on, Taf has asked us to teach, this is in our first three years, kind of listening and learning, but ha- having to do a little bit of teaching to try to work out how to do that. And I was asked to speak on how to support a friend who's in suffering. And so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to to talk about the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel, as I understood it, is insensitive to people who are suffering. It blames them for their suffering. It offers them, you know, superficial solutions. It's just if someone's suffering, the last thing you want to do is come to them and say, just have more faith and God will heal you. And so I, I said this in this seminar to these Tafir students and it was like I'd lit a stick of dynamite in the room, like people were standing up and yelling at me that I was wrong. And I thought, what? And I said to them, hang on, if you were suffering, would you want someone to say to you, just have more faith in God and he will heal you? And they said, yes. And I'm like, I mean, I wouldn't want someone to say that to me. Anyway, and it was just, I just couldn't work out what was going on there at all. Anyway, I went away and spoke to a cultural mentor about it. And she said to me, well, if they don't go to God for their healing, they'll go to the witch doctor. And I realised that in Tanzania, healing is always on the table. The question is, who are you going to get it from? You're going to get it from God or you're going to get it from the witch doctor? And what are you going to do when you're in suffering and you've prayed to God and he hasn't yet answered you? Are you going to go, right, well, I tried God, so now I'll try the witch doctor? Or are you going to have more faith in God? And I realised, oh, whoops, I accidentally told them to go to the witch doctor. Any wonder they were up in arms. They should have been up in arms. And I just thought, People are thinking in different ways here and the way that I've understood, you know, many of these phrases, which I thought were kind of open and shut, it turns out these are received completely differently. And so because of this context, we've actually actually got to think about that differently. And so I would now never say to someone in Tanzania just, you know, that you can't say that. And I probably would say to them, just have more faith in God and he will heal you. But like, cringing on the inside because it sounds wrong to me, but knowing actually this doesn't mean what I think it means. Yeah. So thinking about the just what it's like to be a, a Christian in Tanzania, paint us a picture because it's really helpful for us to to know when it's different from our own experience. You guys know this context and, and you, you kind of know what Australians probably would benefit from knowing about Tanzanian life. Give us, give us a snippet. Yeah, so I think the really big thing that all Tanzanians are thinking about and contending with is the question of poverty. Tanzania is wealthier than it used to be, certainly, and it's urbanising, but that brings all kinds of new challenges. Urban poverty continues to be an issue. And really the big question on people's minds and hearts is how do we combat poverty and where does the power for doing that come from? That's something that all Tanzanians are concerned with, but that's something that the church also has to be concerned with. And in the past, the church has downplayed that and they've really concentrated on being holy. But kind of what it's communicated is that to be a Christian is to be poor. And often that means that um, 
someone else is doing the looking after the poor and the Christians are the poor. And that has all kinds of implications in the context. But one implication that it had is that Tanzania is about 50-50 Christian Muslim and it meant that the Muslims were the ones who were contributing to the nation's wealth and prosperity and development and the Christians were the ones dragging it back. And so first of all, that means Christians are not the ones contributing to that, but it also means that it doesn't make Christianity compelling and it, it sounds like Christianity is not about love because you don't care about people's physical needs and their, you know, their kind of psychological well-being and all that kind of stuff. And so there's, there's not only this sense of who do we want to be as Christians, but there's also this sense of, hang on, how is it that the Muslims are the ones who are known for this? Not that Muslim people can't be known for being loving and everything else, but the contrast is there. And, and also for many people then, you know, Tanzania has a lot of mixed marriages because if the wealthy people are the Muslims and you're looking to marry your daughter off to someone where she's, where she's going to be looked after, you might be a Christian but you might approve a Muslim marriage because you want your daughter to be looked after and then she converts to Islam. And, you know, so there were just lots of kind of implications there that came from that. And so, yeah, and so Christians are just constantly kind of trying to deal with this as a missiological issue but also as a theological issue and this very real issue of how, how poverty works. One of the things about that in terms of power is that people talk about this Pentecostalization of denominations in Tanzania. And that's, that's absolutely true. You have, you have your Pentecostal denominations, absolutely. But in Anglican and Lutheran and Moravian churches and Catholic, Roman Catholic churches, there's this kind of sense of needing to be involved with spiritual powers. So we have a friend, a very dear friend to us, who's an Anglican priest in a very high Anglican church diocese. So when we visit his church, it's lots of robes and it's almost like a dance with all the priests up the front bowing and stuff and, you know, they've got the incense, incense and the yeah. bells and the, the light and all kinds of things. So they do that. But then he'll be out the back after church doing exorcisms. And that is just <laughs> that is just how church is in in Tanzania because people have this have this sense. And I, I think that really comes back into a lot of how some very kind of deep and ancient things about how Africans interact with the world as well. So I, I think it's actually a, a good contextualization of, of Christianity within Africa that it actually kind of accounts for the spirit world and, and helps people to look at these very deep issues of how are they going to prosper in, in society and in their lives and is God interested in that and, and how, can, how can all those things come together? So I think the, yeah, when we talk about the Pentecostalization of Christianity in Africa, in a way, it's also talking about the Africanization of, of Christianity. Right. That's that's a way people are finding to be African and Christian and to be African Christians. Yeah. Mm. And that's such a significant um, thing, isn't it? With the the massive growth of the church, the the fact that in some ways global Christianity really does, it really just has to take account of Africa and what's going on there. It's very easy for us in Australia to think that white Christianity is still, the, I guess, the main the main sort of source of, of wisdom and truth. Yes, I think it is easy for us to think that. I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's true. I don't, as in, I don't even think it's accurate to the world picture. Yeah, and and God is growing his church in both breadth and depth in Africa. And I mean, when I say Africa, our experience has been Tanzania, but I, I think it's true across the continent. And yeah, I just, I think there's lots for us 
to learn. Sometimes it's hard for us to see it to begin with, but like the Holy Spirit is at work there. It's the same Holy Spirit and he's got stuff to teach all of us. Now, I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and provide for this next season for you and to do great things with all this wonderful knowledge you've gained about Africa and about theology and about Tanzania and culture. But in some ways, what strikes me is how much you're bringing back with you, having made this decision now 10 years, okay, we're done. We're, we're going back to Australia. Why stop now? Mm. It was actually something we were talking about from the get-go to commit to a period of time. We wanted to do it long-term. So, you know, in CMS, that means six, seven plus years. Um, if you go for five years, it's short-term. It's still short-term, that's <laughs> right. But we, we didn't want to come into it as career missionaries or just wanting to uh, do that indefinitely. We did want to kind of put some sort of time limit on it. And 10 years wasn't a hard and fast thing. It wasn't like a deadline. But for us, that seemed, under God, that seemed like a, a good kind of ballpark. Because we, we didn't want to grow dependence. Mm, we didn't mm. want to make it that we went in and then set something up and people couldn't cope without us. And so we, we had to be thinking from the beginning, okay, what are we going to do that we can do in this time and how are we going to do it so we can get ourselves out of this situation as well? And that was why 10 years kind of seemed about right. And that kind of really helped shape the involvement that we did had have where, where we, yeah, we wanted to avoid starting things ourselves or running things ourselves became more and more important for us to join in with things that were already going on, things that were already Tanzanian, had already started in, in Tanzania as Tanzanian things. And for, for that reason, that, that you build into something, but when inevitably the time comes to leave, it's still there. It's mm. not hanging on, on, on you and I'm so thankful for what we were talking about earlier, the, that sort of change in the aspect in relation to longevity of service for staff in TAFIS. I mean, it's interesting to think about what we can do in 10 years in our life, isn't it? And, and that's, that's quite an extraordinary thing that God has done through you in some ways to, to build that extra capacity into TAFIS. And I give thanks for that. Yeah, I think that one of the I mean, that's one of the things that, that, that happened. There are a number of changes in TAFES. So we kind of came into TAFES, like I say, thinking about TAFES's visioning and who they wanted to be. And so when we first came into TAFES, we talked about helping TAFES to be true to itself. And, and really that kind of a lot of that clarifying of the vision stuff happened kind of in our first, I don't know, three to four years at TAFES. And then we were working more on some, some of these kind of consolidating ministry issues, which included the longevity thing. It included looking after staff. It included providing training that was actually relevant to what the staff were doing previously. It had been a bit more generalised. And then providing resources so that that could continue because you don't want it all just living in Arthur's head or whatever. And, and what happened really was that at about the nine-year mark, the eight or nine-year mark, we looked at it and said, I think... I think we've done what we came to do. You know, there's there's this strong sense of vision. The staff are seeing themselves as people who can contribute. There's a they're well looked after. They're better trained than what they've been. They're able to stay for longer. We looked at that and thought, oh, so we probably need to start either thinking about a new vision 
or think about winding up. And we they, we knew there was going to be a leadership transition. And so we stuck around for an extra year to see that leadership transition through. But really we stuck around for that year just for that. We could have gone home at the nine-year mark, but we were, we were very glad that we stuck around for that because we were able to make some good contributions there. But then you sort of get to the 10-year mark and we knew that we were heading towards coming back to Australia. And But the easiest thing to do would have been to stay. That's where our life was. We felt, you know, competent. We loved the people that we were working with. And it was where all, all our children had known, really, that was where our life was. And we were so glad that we'd put the 10-year cap on it because otherwise we think we would have just stayed and found anything to do, whether or not it was particularly useful, whether or not it, you know, engendered dependence or whatever. And so having that upper limit was really, I think, a good discipline for us. And it came together with some other things, some other, you know, family issues, which meant it was good for us to be back in Australia for a while. And then, yeah. So you're really shining a light for us, I reckon, on the significance of thinking things through in the lead up to mission. That that you would not be advocates of just kind of making a a spontaneous decision and then just jumping on a plane. So can we just wind back as we sort of wrap things up? I'm, I'm keen to get just a bit of an idea of your pathway to mission. Tell us a little bit about the thinking you did. Some of the key people. How did you how did you get this discernment to be a missionary? to go to Tanzania and to have some of these thoughts that have been so helpful for us in this interview. Right, well, I'll start because my, my you, um, journey goes back, further, yeah. goes back a little bit further. So um, I grew up with a family that were CMS supporters and so I remember being dragged along to every CMS event as a child and, and also I was part of a ministry family and so, you know, do you want to be a you know, when you're a kid, you want to be a teacher or a firefighter or a policeman. The the natural one on the end there was pastor or missionary for me because that was who I grew up around. But I think from a young age, I was exposed to to God's world. My mum had this book that we prayed through called "You Can Change the World," and it had it went through various countries in the world. It had points to change for, and I remember praying for Bhutan as a nation because missionaries were not allowed in there because the King of Bhutan would not allow missionaries in there. I remember praying with my sisters that God would make the King of Bhutan open it up. And I remember then reading some years later that missionaries were allowed into Bhutan. And my sisters and I were like, we did that. We, yeah. we prayed for, for, for God to open the Bhutan to Christian missionaries. And so, I mean, that's a very early experience. But I think part of it was that we kept going to CMS things and we kept hearing about CMS you know, missionaries in the world, but also I think we also heard what we heard from some majority world speakers and we heard about what missionaries shouldn't be involved in as well and that, particularly in Africa, that that really started shaping some of how we thought, we thought okay, if we're going to go, here, here are the parameters of what we're going to do and here's how we want to be trained and here's what we don't want to do and here's what we do want to do. And I think that was really useful to us as well. So I mean one of the one of the big things for us was just being around CMS. <laughs> and do you want to do you want to talk a bit more? Well, and I think the other thing was actually the environment as part of a university ministry, you know, you're becoming a global citizen, but you're also gaining a sense of of yourself as a part of God's global people. And so going along to mission brekkies and those kind of events, what that was doing for me was 
it was just exposing me to a whole lot of different contexts and a whole lot of different opportunities. And so what, what God was developing in me was not, oh, yes, this or that particular place, but just this is just a wide open horizons. And so by the time it got to, well, it was AFES National Training Event in, in, in 2003. <laughs> and I kind of, yeah, God brought me to two things. One was I really am passionate about campus ministry and wanting to keep going with that. But secondly, why stay in Australia? You know, this could, we could go anywhere with this. Yeah. So, and, and that was a product of, I think that, that, that ecosystem of, of, of just exposure to God's world and all sorts of things going on. Yeah. So what happened to actually make it Tanzania? Yeah. So we were we were talking with CMS and, and in contact with them and the opportunities we were talking about were to do with with Europe and maybe Eastern Europe. We both had some German language and history background through our studies. That's what we were looking at. We moved to Melbourne for our theological studies and you know, it gets cold in Adelaide, but there's the the big blue sky and it, Melbourne does not have that. Melbourne's got <laughs> At least the part of Melbourne we were living in. It, People it was... in Melbourne think it's, you know, the most livable city on earth. That's just because they don't know about Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> so we we had clouds and grey skies and for nine months we were really affected by that. You know, it, it mucked up my circadian rhythms and sleeping and, it, and Tammy kind of got depressed, like this is the seasonal affective disorder kind of thing. Mm. So in the midst of that, we kind of started going, Europe, yeah, no, we, we <laughs> kind of, we, are we too soft for Europe? Yeah, so that was, that was something that happened. And then in that same year when a visiting missionary at the college came and put out the word for university ministry needs in Tanzania, we kind of looked at each other and went, well, the sun shines in Tanzania. <laughs> right. But yeah. we were also, we, I think we very much felt that, I mean, I'd done post-colonial studies at uni, like I was saying, we, we had these kind of concerns about how to operate in, in Africa as particularly as white people and from kind of Western world. And so we really didn't want to go to Africa at all, but because we were hearing this invitation and we thought, well, maybe we should go and see is it a real invitation? Is it is it just from, you know, is it just a missionary wanting more people to come and do what he's doing? And so we had the opportunity to visit, and that was a really key time for us. We were actually only there for a for a week. No, was it a week? Yeah, it was a week. And we were a bit in Dar. We got to meet the Tafes people in Dar, and then we were in Dodoma staying with this missionary. But on the way from Dar to Dodoma, which is meant to be a six hour journey, and it took twelve hours for us because of bus driver caused an accident on the way and so they pulled the the bus over in what we now know was not the middle of nowhere but we looked like the middle of nowhere to us at the time and arrested the driver and then we all just had to sit as passengers in the bus with no driver and then they ended up getting a, another driver to come from Dodoma after we'd been waiting for some time who then drove us to Dodoma so it took 12 hours instead of six hours and then the night that we arrived the missionary that we were staying with had a heart attack and his wife came into our room where we were sleeping and said, do either of you have any kind of medical knowledge? And we were like, no, sorry, we're art, art students here. And, and she was saying, oh, I'm trying to recall my 
high school physiology because I think I think he's having a heart attack. And then the next day they tried to go and get him some medical help. You know, he goes to see the doctor, comes back with paracetamol. And I think it was actually really good for us to see that and to see how she handled it and and to think, okay, this is what it could be like. Are we cut out for that? Is this the kind of thing that we could handle? As it turns out, we're much better at handling that than we are at handling gray skies. <laughs> and, then, and then also, of course, we got to meet with people and find out actually this is a genuine uh, invitation. There are like good ways of doing this. Yeah, so one of the key things was meeting with TAFES people and expressing our interest in, in working with them and being asked, well, what have you got to offer? And I think that just that question said to us, wow, these people know what they're on about and they're not just wanting us to come and, you know, do whatever, but there is a ground here for a real collaboration. Yeah, that was huge. So what's your word to the inquirer who is still a fair way back, maybe just not sure if mission is the thing, they're asking questions. Maybe they're not, not sure yet what questions to ask. What's your word to this inquirer? I think we would want to say just, you know, there's nothing better than being where the action is. <laughs> Today, we really see in a in a new way the global expression of the body of Christ, and it's just so exciting being. Getting, getting the chance to be part of that. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think we, we often talk about world mission in terms of sacrifice, in terms of hardship, and it's not that those are not a part of it, but it's it's also incredible privilege and it's getting to be a part of things and it's having your world expanded and having yourself expanded and I just think that it's it's a wonderful thing to be a part of and and it's a positive thing to be a part of and it's really been the privilege of our lives so far We've loved it. And so don't just think about all the, you know, the negatives and the sacrifice. Think of just yeah, how, what a privilege it is to be involved in God's world and how, and how God, you know, he does empower his people for, for this work. You're not going alone. And I think as well there are, there are beautiful and surprising things that you don't know until you go and then you get there and you think, I mean, my PhD is an example of that. We were just blown away by the work that God's doing you know, you can be concerned about raising your children in a place, you know, in a, in a developing country or whatever. Our children think they've had the best childhood. You know, they've loved every minute of it. I mean, no, that's not true. We don't all love every minute of everything. But you know what I mean? They, they've had a great time and there have been definite difficult things for them as well. So I'm not trying to cover that up. But I think there are there are good gifts that God gives people as well. Not not least the opportunity to see lions every year <laughs> on holiday. <laughs> but God does provide for his people. He does empower his people. And we can continue to rely on him, you know, with faith and courage. Arthur and Tammy Davis, it's such a treat to hear from your wisdom and your perspectives, the things you've learned, and to hear your testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit over this last 10 years through you. And it's very exciting. Thank you so much for being with us on The Heart of Mission. Yes, thanks, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on The Heart of Mission podcast. What small role can you be playing in God's big plans? To find out more about CMS and opportunities that might be there for you, search us on the web to find your local branch and local social media channels. CMS is a fellowship of Christian people and churches committed to global mission. 
we work together to set apart long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for a world that knows Jesus. See you next time.